Thanks very much, and thanks to the last two speakers. Um, I'm hoping I'm, I'll try and dodge any ground that they've already covered as far as I possibly can. Um, my focus um, is actually on adult education as a field of work um, and adult educators um, as workers in that field. Um, and I think one of the things that's happened with the discourses of lifelong learning is it's kind of written out educators. Um, so hopefully I can write them back in uh, for the purposes of a conversation later. So um, my uh, contribution focuses on how and whether adult educators, both inside and outside the academy, can maintain adult education as a field. Um, and particularly um, kind of thinking on what Jim's uh, been talking about as a field for critical and democratic practice, uh, for which it's got a strong historical tradition. Um, in order to have this discussion, I'm going to uh, present to you some of the data from my research on adult educators' perspectives. Um, and I'm going to try and end, instead of in complete despair, uh, with... Uh, Marion's manifesto or whatever, but something that maybe we can kind of discuss um, about, well, where do we go from here? I think actually, um, although I'm, my focus is beyond uh, higher educate, adult education and higher education, I think a lot of what's happened to adult educators also applies to us as people who now work in higher education. So maybe there'll be some thought about what we do and where's the t terrain for us to operate in as, as workers. This is where I go wrong immediately. Approach down. Like that. Like that. Which do I touch? I'm so hopeless. Oh, right. There's something really Let's try that one. That one? That one? No, it's not. Just press the I'm beginning with uh, what I call the adult educator's dilemma. And this, this dilemma comes from um, one of the interviews that I undertook with um, adult educators in both England and New Zealand a couple of years ago. Um, and I love this quote. It makes me cry. But um, uh, Carla says, I feel like a polar bear sitting on an iceberg which is slowly melting. My environment is slowly being whittled away. And what's left of it is not enough to make a living. I'm virtually unemployed in a sense. And I think anyone who's worked in adult education uh, will certainly uh, feel some empathy with that kind of perspective on what it is to be an edu adult educator these days. And then I get heartened when I read Griff Foley. Griff Foley uh, is an uh, Australian academic and adult educator who says, who challenges me every time I get this, uh, become uh, desperate. Um, um, and suggests that, you know, we have options really. We can either capitulate and become more efficient managers of learning for capitalism, or we can nostalgically and ineffectually be bemoan the de decline and death of earlier traditions, or we can fight on new terrain. So uh, that challenges us to think about what spaces there are for critical and democratic adult education practice. Um, it also, I think it's uh, Jane Thompson again who said, uh, are we living in spaces or are we clinging on in the cracks? And I think that is a, a question I often ask myself. Um, 
I'm also drawn to this strange policy paradox in the same document, in fact, that comes earlier than that, uh, UNESCO refers to adult education as the cure for practically everything, including AIDS, um, uh, and the environment, uh, and raising awareness, and human rights, and combating racism, and so on and so forth. Um, but also uh, the paradox is that adult educators suffer from low status and remuneration, um, projectism, um, and ultimately uh, lack of work. So uh, UNESCO feels that sufficient, predictable and well-targeted funding is more the exception than the rule. So we've got a paradox and we've got a dilemma. Um, just very briefly, because uh, I think Jim and Miriam have both covered this, and basically for me the, uh, the field of adult education covers a very broad range of purposes. Um, they, it includes things like English as a second language, uh, non-vocational education, informal education, community education, um, education for a whole range of aims and purposes. And it's tended to be underpinned, again, by a whole range of uh, ideologies, be they implicit or explicit, but primarily, as Miriam suggested, uh, liberal ideologies, humanistic ideologies, kind of based in Carl Rogers' work, um, but also uh, radical ideologies uh, based primarily in Paulo Freire's work. And I guess those of us who've been adult educators have all, all carried a bit of all of those ideologies or a bit more of one than the other. Uh, Jim's also mentioned um, kind of where we've got to under neoliberalism. Uh, the contemporary contract text for adult uh, education's work will be very familiar to any of us um, who've worked in or with uh, in adult education or with adults. The emphasis on employability and skills for life. Um, the emphasis on adult education as a market commodity, something that if it's not about work, then it's something that should be paid for. The growth of credentialism, um, e ELQ, um, and the, the need to package up adult education into uh, qualifications has, has uh, been extremely problematic in relation to having more open-ended forms of adult education. Um, and I think finally, uh, adult education has been in the forefront of cuts in public sector funding. It's, it was basically the first bit of education to go, uh, mainly because it was easiest actually to get rid of it. So that's the background. Um, what I'm just going to focus on for a little bit is some research I did in England and New Zealand. Um, uh, the research was based in both those countries because I'd worked in community education in both in both countries, but also that they both followed a similar trajectory. When I, I, I kind of went to work as an adult educator in New Zealand as a refugee from the demise of adult education in England, um, and spent three years telling people it was going to happen there, and they didn't believe me, but within, oh, about six months of my leaving, adult education collapsed in New Zealand. So it seemed like fruitful ground to kind of look at what, what was happening to adult educators. So 
so my research um, involved interviewing 62 adult educators, 31 in each country, um, about the impact of policy on their working lives, how adult educators are responding to that landscape, whether adult educators face conflicts between their beliefs as adult educators and what they were expected to do in their work, and what kind of strategies they adopted, either accommodating policy or resisting it. And then finally, uh, what the prospects were for maintaining or defending adult education in a broad range of purposes. It is ironic, uh, the book uh, Adult Education in Changing Times was published by NIACE in uh, 2014, which subsequently became the Centre for Learning and Work, I think. Le Learning and Work Institute, thank you, um, and which ceased publishing books and distributing them. So, sadly, uh, the book rests rests there at the moment. It's out, it's out of print at the moment. Okay, so, uh, so I undertook about 62 interviews and uh, I looked first at adult educators' concerns. These are all concerns from England, uh, but basically what they all add up to is uh, concerns about targeting, uh, concerns about targets which don't relate to individual students, uh, students as individuals, but as groups, as targeted groups, um, and that funding is dependent on people being within certain targeted groups. And Judith talks about the pressure uh, that she gets from different directions. She wants to do the best for students, but she's constrained by policy directives. And any of us who've worked in adult education will know that there are inclusion and exclusion criteria for, uh, for working with certain adults. And she says, I feel as though I'm being held hostage and will only have the ropes loosened a bit by conforming to demands which I think are unethical. So what we see is the kind of dilemmas that adult educators as workers find themselves in. And Ursula talks about, um, again, needing to produce evidence for one set of funders and then other sorts of evidence for another set of funders. And you have these two hats on. One's to do with quality and the other's to do with quantity. And the equation for me doesn't match up the quantity and the quality. And then uh, Bob, who's a, a, a long-time uh, adult educator in the critical tradition, I'd say, he, he says, I think we've now, ha we've now gone back to that situation where education is stripped of any ideological or social context. Sorry. All that debate has gone. It's almost as if you have a very powerful ideology that pretends it isn't an ideology at all. So basically, what Bob is talking about is the kind of assumptions in the discourse of adult education and lifelong learning now, uh, which are targeted, instrumental, um, and individualised. So those are their concerns. I was also interested in their philosophies and values. Given that adult education comes from, has a kind of range of ideological and philosophical positions, um, and the one it's proudest of, I think, is its, its radical traditions. Um, I was quite interested to note that, by and large, adult educators were very unkeen 
or talking about theory or ideology or the politics of adult education. They were really quite kind of cherry. And they tended, although they strongly articulated beliefs and values about the value, sorry, of adult education, uh, they primarily talked in humanistic terms and about individuals, the empowerment of individuals as, as opposed to more social empowerment. And radical and critical uh, kind of perspectives were in fact very rare, and I only came across those um, among adult educators of 30 years standing or more, which suggests to me that uh, theory of adult education and the ideologies behind adult education have somehow got lost, um, e either in training or in the course of people's work. So although there were discourses of social justice, um, they were very often in terms of giving a person a leg up um, or um, fairness or second chances. And people, by and large, depended on experience rather than theory and were very reluctant to discuss the kind of, if you like, the longer, the longer purpose of what they're doing. But by and large, I think what they would say was that there was a conflict between the expectations laid upon them and their belief in doing a good job for, for adults. So most had were in a state of some dilemma. And one of the things I was interested to know is how they dealt with the dilemmas in their, in their work. You know, how did they manage working with uh, policies which were not policies that they, uh, they agreed with and they felt were detrimental to students? Um, and I identified three, three approaches or three strategies for dealing with the contradiction between policy and belief. Um, they weren't, uh, people didn't just drop into one category or, or another, but there were three sort of tendencies. It's worth mentioning that of the 62 people I interviewed, around one third of them had already experienced redundancy or reduced working hours, or had recently retired or were planning to leave publicly funded adult education. And I think that illustrates the extent to which adult education has always been uh, or tended to be an hourly paid, uh, very often female workers in a marginalised field. Um, and many don't have any choice about what they do in this situation because they either cling on to their job or they find themselves redundant and have to go into another field. But anyway, for those remaining, there were three types of strategies that emerged. One was accommodation. The second was what I call micro-resistances, which may be familiar to some of us here, and the others were organised resistances. Accommodation responses were found in the kind of comment which says, I can adapt to this, I can adapt to that, I love working with the students and I just want the best for them really, so whatever policy throws at me I can work with it. Um, or the kind of comment which says, with the change in policies, I've decided to make them work for me. There's been too much doom and gloom. This is what's happened. Okay, let's get on with it. Let's see, see how we can change and make it really work. And then the more uh, anxious kind of accommodation, which is a recognition that um, you have to compromise, but 
that's how you, the only way that you can survive. How do I survive otherwise in a world that isn't really supportive of adult education? And it's interesting that Alison, um, who made this comment, um, was in the process of going to work in as a staff trainer in, a, in the private sector because there's no other way she could actually do what she felt that she was good at um, and, and still have a living. So accommodation um, is okay uh, until, of course, policy changes so much that you've got nowhere to sort of shift to. There were other people who engaged in what I call micro-resistances. Um, I, I recognise these um, as an adult educator. There are, there are some things, some of the things about resistances, I think there are small resistances you can make as an adult educator within your work. A lot of time you're complying, but there are more things you can do and ways that you can work and you can challenge yourself a bit to think of new ways. Um, it's what I call ducking and weaving or working outside, they often called working outside the box or being creative. And one of the ways you can be creative in adult education is keep change the name, changing the name of the course. Uh, they have to change the name every 10 weeks, so I never know what I'm teaching. It's called move on, brush up, take the test, whatever. As long as they change the name, you can come back. And this is basically because people can't, can't stay on a course um, and do it again. Or, you know, you've got to keep changing it because it's, it's attached to a particular qualification. So I kind of like that, and that's particularly around lit literacy. Um, and there are other people, people who are more experienced, I think, often felt more comfortable to say, one of the things I do is just not always believe that the rules are correct, that, that something can't be done. Just because a rule or a policy says it can't be done, there is always a way. So renaming courses, using small-scale funding from one-off kind of bits of money to cobble together a course, um, which is more flexible and appropriate to learners' needs. Performing to, the, uh, to uh, inspectors and audits' demands when they're there and doing something totally different when they're not there was another quite common micro-resistance strategy. And also just taking advantage of the fact that once you're in a classroom with a group of learners, whatever you learn, you can whatever is learned can be negotiated with them to some extent. So I thought these micro-resistances were very interesting and they ring a lot of bells in terms of the sort of work I do in, in, in universities anyway. I mean, I spend a lot of time saying, um, accusing colleagues of what I call preemptive compliance. And I say, never comply before you're made to do something. You know, it's really important to wait until, you know, to see who blinks first, basically, before you comply. So I quite like this notion of... of, of um, micro-resistances. But micro-resistances, I think, do have problems, again, as we all know, because it's really hard to draw the line between resistance and compliance unless you have a very clear sense of who you are and, and, and what you're doing. So uh, Ursula says you get sucked into things. She, she was become a manager, a sort of middle manager. You get sucked into things and then you have to pause and think, hang on a minute, I'm getting pulled down here. You have to pause and regroup. So a question which arises for me is, well, how productive are resistances which aren't visible? Um, we can console ourselves as ad adult educators in, 
in saying I'm doing a good job in my classroom. But if it's not visible, I think it's probably only ourselves we're consoling. And are they a diversion of energy into overworking rather than overt resistance? Very often people would actually work much more than they were paid for in order to kind of compensate for the inadequacy of what they were paid to do. And do they comfort the educator without changing the situation? So I think they're a strategy, but I don't think they're the new terrain. So, and that's where I'm a bit critical about the notion of working in spaces, because like whose, whose spaces are they and how are we defining our spaces? Finally, am I okay? I've only got about five minutes. Um, finally, there was, there was talk of collective resistance and it was interesting to learn more about campaigns both in New Zealand and in England, which had been really effective. Um, Action for ESOL, I think, is uh, a campaign in the UK which I think has been particularly successful in putting its point across. It hasn't been successful in changing policy because the policy on ESOL gets worse by the day, but I think it was a very effective campaign um, uh, for preserving funding for English as a second language. It was one uh, which students and teachers alike were involved in, the trade unions were involved in and so on. So I think um, I think we can learn a lot from action from ESOL personally. Um, similarly in New Zealand, the campaign against cuts in adult education, um, which came around 2010, uh, was amazingly effective given how scattered a country New Zealand is. Um, there were demonstrations up and down the country, masses of pre press coverage and so on, and adult educators and, and uh, students again mobilised together. Again, not successfully, ultimately. Um, the, the one successful campaign I can think of for adult educators was the boycott of compulsory member, membership of the Institute for Learning. Um, I suppose it was kind of an easy boycott in a sense. There was a rule which said that I think to, in order to be an adult educator in an FE college or anywhere else, you had to be a member of the Institute for Learning. And not only did you have to be a member, you had to pay 35 quid for the privilege. And uh, it was a policy that couldn't be made to stick because adult educators just didn't do it, didn't refuse to pay by and large. So that was kind of a good campaign. Um, so uh, the other kind of collective resistance, which I think again is, um, it, it wanes, it waxes and wanes, is, and I've been involved in this kind of stuff, is activism outside the institutions. Um, free universities, activism around the Occupy movement and so on, where adult educators have just moved out of the, uh, or their, they may remain working in their adult education paid space, but also move out and use their skills and uh, organisational abilities uh, in opposition um, as well. Um, free universities uh, are an example of that. So. The situation, I think, now is one around adult education, I think, as a field of work, is pretty much despair. Um, adult education is incredibly fragmented, but I think it always has been pretty fragmented. Uh, most of the campaigns around um, adult education have tended to falter or be quite short term, although Action on ESOL still maintains its website. The umbrella bodies in both countries which uh, supported adult education 
seem to have very much shifted to uh, strategising with government or to a learning for work focus, uh, leaving adult, leaving kind of grassroots adult educators pretty much on their own. So that's my despair. So I'm trying to think, well, has the struggle for adult education as broadly based practice and as professional practice in involving adult edu educators, has it been lost beyond the micro strategies of resistance in the workplace, which, um, which I've tried to critique, but uh, which I think we should critique ourselves when we engage in them? Or does this situation provide an opportunity to look beyond adult education as a discrete field of practice and to organise more collectively beyond the boundaries of formal education and to develop what, what Sarah Amsler calls a third space, talking of spaces, but basically networks uh, that kind of transcend our practice, if you like, but places where we can organise and talk about the purposes of adult education. Because I think one of the problems of adult education is that its purposes have always been quite uh, conflicting and unclear and we sometimes thought we were talking about the same thing when we were talking about quite different things. So my feeling is we need to re-articulate re that and that we need to do a lot of our educational work outside the academy and the institutions. But I think there is a role for research and scholarship Adult educators' reluctance around theory, for me, has something to do with the way academics make theory accessible, or the way that they try to talk uh, with adult educators. So, so I think there are possibilities for thinking about how we talk about theory. I think academics also have a role, and again, Griff Foley has done quite a lot of this work in Australia, of collecting evidence for the value of adult and popular education which isn't just about the financial and economic value. A lot of the research is focused on economic value. And finally, which I think is an interesting project, is documenting successful resistances. And I think that relates to what Jim's talking about um, in terms of the referendum. I think those successful re resistances are really important and we can learn a great deal for them. And then Marion's manifesto is just basically, I don't think it's at all contentious, but, but I think we need to restate some things, you know, that education is first and foremost a public and not a private good. That forms of education which have as their primary aim the distribution of life chances by creating winners and losers in a competition for qualifications are very unlikely to promote equality that there are alternatives, but we need to debate them. And alternatives are based on differences in view, different philosophies, um, but that, if you like, debating them are fundamental to deciding what adult education is or should be about. Uh, picking up on Jim's points too, I mean, I think adult education, or all education, should seek to enable individuals to develop their understanding of how political systems and institutions work and how they can voice their views. And education can't ever be neutral or apolitical. And I think that one of the criticisms I would make of the adult educators that I spoke with is that their desire to 
sustain what I think is a myth that, you know, education is just about doing good for people. It's not. It's highly political. And then finally, I think history, along with theory, are really important to understanding uh, that now may be a bad moment, but there was a history and there will be a future. So, thanks. Thank you very much. Thanks.